Judges 8, verse 22 says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your sons and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. That was unexpected. I don't know if you've looked at the story of Gideon in a while or if you've heard the story of Gideon in a while, but if you haven't, I'd encourage you to read Judges 6 through 8. But that statement in Judges 8, uh, Gideon, we want you to rule over us, that's unexpected. That, that's not what was, uh, you would have thought. It was an unexpected thing. And unexpected things happen to us often. Maybe for you, it's just this unexpected thing that's happened in the last uh, 18, 19 months, and you still have this feeling of feeling uh, just not safe, uh, and you struggle still with that, or just not knowing what the future is going to be like. There's just this so much unexpected in your future, and you feel that regularly, or just in your finances. Well, what's going to happen with this situation? What's God going to do? Or just a lack of stability in a job, or a feeling of, you know what? What's next for me? I, I, my kids have been raised. My, uh, they're gone. I just feel a little useless. I don't know what my next spot is. This is not what I thought this was going to be like at this stage of life. It's a little unexpected. Or maybe you have a fractured relationships and, and you thought, that, that, I didn't think this would ever be this way. But it's fractured now. And it was unexpected. You don't know how to fix it. You don't know what to do with it. Or you thought, by now, you thought for sure I would be farther along spiritually than I am. That, that, that I, I, would be, I would be closer to Jesus and more like him than I am right now. And, and you, it's, it's unexpected. You're not really sure what to do with it. That, that this is how... In many ways, this story and this account is where it seems sometimes in all those situations you might feel like a little hopeless. I'm not, I'm not sure which way it's going to go. You feel very maybe weak or struggling with it. You can't fix it and you're a fixer and you're trying to figure out what to do with that. So where does hope come from? What, what does hope look like in the midst of weakness? And we're just going to work our way through Judges chapter 6, this account of what's going on. It says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it starts out with just great grief. Great grief, verses 1 through 6. It says, And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or oxen or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number, but they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. There was, in this scene, it just starts out with just an amazing amount of grief. This is unexpected, because if you look right at the beginning, the, the, the people had had 40 years of peace. It says, and the land had rest for 40 years. Deborah had done her job as, as judge, and then the, the, the land had rest. 
There was no, no trouble. They'd plant their crops. They'd harvest their crops. They'd eat the produce. They would enjoy life for 40 years. And then all of a sudden, the, the Midians have come back, who they defeated in the past, and now are just devouring them. And for seven years, the people of Israel are just being ravaged. I mean, so much so that they would walk, they'd go to work, they'd plant their crops, they'd watch them grow, and the Midians, their ox, their camels, would just wipe it out and leave them with nothing. The first year, they're thinking, okay, that was, that was unexpected, that was odd. And they'd do it again the next year, they'd do it again the next year, they do it in the next year, and now they're getting scared, and so they know it's coming. They haven't been able to stop it, so they say, let's go, kids. Let's get together. Let's go. We've got to find a cave. We're going to go hang out in a cave for a few months, and the kids are like, really, Dad? Again? But the crops are right there. Isn't it time for harvest? Let's go, kids. Don't talk. Let's go. Get out of here. And they're hiding in caves. And their first response is not to cry out to God. Their first response is to try to fix it themselves and run into a cave and think, well, maybe it'll be better next year. Maybe it'll work out better for me. But finally, toward the seven years, it says they cried out to the Lord. And the reason that they are in this situation because they were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them over to the hands of the Midians. The people then cried out to the Lord. They wanted help. They wanted a Savior. The first scene is great grief, where things just aren't going the way they thought that they would go. They thought for sure they'd be done with masks by now. They thought for sure that they'd be able to do what they want to do, have all their freedoms back. But there's just continuing the cycle that doesn't seem to change. That's the scene multiplied, multiplied, multiplied. There's just great grief. And then they cry out to God. And then verse 7 says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you out of Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. The people have just cried out for help. I mean, they've been being ravaged for seven years. They're wore out, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're frustrated, they can't fix it, they cry out to God. And what they expected was for God probably to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of it. But that's not what God does right away. It's kind of unexpected what he does. What he does is they, they, they wanted a savior and God sent them a sermon. He sent them a prophet. One of the a, a commentators said this would be like sending a philosopher instead of a mechanic if your car was broke down on the side of the road and you called for help. And then they, they send this philosopher. It would be like sending me. Your car's broke down on the side of the road. And then someone says, hey, Paul, go help him out. Uh, that's how odd this would be. This is not what you would expect. They, they needed, they wanted help. 
And God sends them this prophet who is giving them his word. He gives them this sermon. And he told them why that they are in this situation. They, They cried out, but it really wasn't repentance. It was just regret. And God says, listen, I told you in Deuteronomy that if you follow me, it will go well for you. And if you don't follow me, it will not go well for you. But the people had forgotten this. And so God gave them a reason. He sent them the prophet. They had regret, but they didn't have repentance. And God's sole design in this story is to show the people of God who he is and what he can do and what he wanted from them and what he wants from you and what he wants from me is sole reliance on God. They had tried relying on caves. They tried relying on, hey, we'll just, we'll just plant again. And it didn't work out. And God let it happen because his desire was for them to rely on God alone. Psalm 62, 1 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. With all the unexpected things you might be dealing with, all the frustrations, all the things that got you kind of worked up right now, are you relying on God alone? Or is it God plus the stuff I got in the bank? Or God plus my abilities, or I can work through this, or my friends, or whatever it is. God's ultimate goal for us is soul reliance on God. For God alone, my soul rests and waits for Him. And He wants us to abandon all. But for us, abandoning all looks very weak. It looks like Weakness, because we'll wonder, where, where's our strength going to come? They wanted a Savior, and God sent them a sermon. He sent His Word, which is the same thing that we need today. With all the unexpected things you're going through, all the struggles, all the difficulties, you're going to have to come and deal with God's Word. This is what he wants from us. It's the word of God can't be avoided if we're going to get the help that we need. Through through scripture, through hearing the word of God preached, through counseling and having other people share the word of God with us, this is what gives us the faith to go forward. This is what God knew. He came and he gave them a prophet first, knowing their situation. He gave them his word and he reminded them. Again, he goes, remember what I did for you in Egypt. Remember, remember. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. You're not going to have the faith that you need if you're just going to try to build it up in yourself. You wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to do it this week. I'm really going to believe in God today. That's not where faith comes from. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It comes through God's word. It's God's, because God's word tells us that God's ways are not our ways. God's word is our guide, it says in Psalms 119. It's a light unto our feet and a light to our path. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it tells us to hear the word of God, let our minds be transformed by God's word so that we can grow. It's, It's God's word 
that we need. And God comes to them. He knows they're in trouble. He knows they've had all these unexpected and should have been expected things, but they had forgotten God. And he gives them a prophet. He gives them his word. And, it, and, it, and what we expect next, if you haven't read this before, you would expect this, like, here they're in trouble. Here God comes and says they disobeyed. They didn't do what's right. And so now he's going to give them their punishment. He's going to say, here's what's going to happen. But he doesn't do that. He does an unexpected thing. Instead of punishment, he introduces them to an individual, or he gives them, in many ways, a weekly. It says in verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Bezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The first part was great grief. I think this next part is just a giant gulp. Here is God coming to this guy named, young guy named Gideon, hiding behind the wine press, trying to press out his wheat which was usually done in the open so the wind could blow it away, but the Midian said, keep coming. God comes to him and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And I'm pretty sure Gideon gulped when he heard that. He didn't feel like a mighty man of valor. He didn't seem like a mighty man of valor. I don't think he was a coward because I think he just was doing what he knew to do. He had known for seven years that this is what people did. They, they stake our stuff. But he, had be, he thought, you know what, I'm just going to protect what I can. So he got what he could, and he was trying to take care of whatever he was trying to take care of his, of his family. And he hears God say to him, he's a mighty man of valor. And in that moment, Gideon has all these giant grievances to talk to God about. And Gideon said to him in verse 13, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. The answer really isn't why. There is a reason why they're in this situation. They didn't, they didn't obey God. But here's Gideon, this young guy, working behind this wine press, hiding, fearful, afraid, thinking about what's going on in the world, what's going on in his life, what's going on in his faith. This guy comes to him and says, you're a mighty man of valor, serve and follow God. And, and his first reaction is confusion. Partly because Gideon was living out the consequences that his father allowed in his life, which was he didn't get clear worship. His, his dad, he was doing this where there were false gods they were worshiping in his, in his father's land. And he had this, this hypocrisy. Gideon had clearly heard all the truths about God, but he's watching his parents, watching his family not follow God and he's got all these thoughts he knows what God said and he's seeing something completely different and his mind is filled with questions and when, and he says why if God's really for us 
Why has all this happened to us? He should have known, but clearly his dad wasn't teaching him. And, and why isn't, where's all the great stories that we're supposed to know about? And his questions are, does God care? Does God know what he's doing? Does God keep his promises? Will God take care of me? Aren't those the same questions that we ask? If we're honest, when we try to put all our stuff together, do it on our own, we think we can make it, we're, we're kind of basically hiding behind the wine press, working hard, and really wondering, does God really care about me? Does God really know what he's doing? Does God really keep his promises? If, if, why, why? And the question is, where are you going to take your giant questions? And the truth for Gideon was he was taking them right to the angel of God. He was taking them right to where God was. All of us have giant questions about God, or you should. It's what you do with them that matters. Where are you taking them? Are you going to just say, no, God's not around, it's not working out, so I'm just done with God? Where are you taking your questions? Gideon was taught and how to settle, and he was choosing to settle, and God was calling him to set his eyes on him, which is the same choice that we have. We can be very easily taught just to settle. Settle for this and try to figure out on our own. One commentator said, In every age, there are forces at work which promise to meet our desires. Political programs, economic theories, philosophical moments, entertainment industries, all having one feature in common. They are big enough to do things for us that we cannot do for ourselves, yet at the same time amenable to our manipulating them so as to get from them what we want. We put our money into this one and vote for that one and spend all of our free time on the other one. Here is the enemy among us. We, God's people, do know the Lord, but how much of the world around us has crept in among us? It seems to have taken over our thinking in such a way that we can hardly see how we can live without it. And this is where Gideon was. He knew all about God. He knew all about the promises of God. But he wasn't seeing any of it. And so he thought still that he had to do it on his own. And he was weak, he was afraid, and he was fearful. And God says to him in verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said, God didn't give any explanation to all his questions directly. But it says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Gideon, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? He's almost like, Are you kidding me? Do you, do you see who you're looking at here? I'm just trying to make it. I'm just trying to take care of a little bit of stuff for my family. And now you're trying to send me away? Did you hear any of my questions? Did you, did you notice anything I just said? We are the weakest of the tribes of Israel. We are nothing. But he had these giant grievances, 
And God says, listen, go in obedience. Act. Act to choose. Act of faith. And Gideon does. Gideon does it. He goes and does what God says. But he asks again, hey, if you're really God, give me a sign. And so he says, stay here for a little bit. I'm going to make you a meal. And then you, you come back and, 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 and eat it. And this is what it says in verse 22. Then Gideon perceived. So he, he made this meal. He came back to the angel of the Lord, verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And he was afraid again. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And God said to him, Go now. And now I want you to go and tear down another altar. I want you to tear down your dad's altars. The ones he built for the bales on his property. And Gideon is scared and he's afraid. And it says in verse 27, but he obeys. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. But he did it. In his fear, in his weakness, he still did it. At the moment, someone said obedience was essential and heroism was optional. It didn't matter if he did it in the day. He did it. What's God called you to? And said, I I want you to do this. Just do it. Just keep doing it. And you said, I'm afraid to do it. And you just didn't do it. That's not Gideon. Gideon is scared to death. All of his questions of God about God are not answered yet. But he does it. Because he was told, but I will be with you. And he goes and he knocks over the bales and he sets up an altar. And the people of the city come back and they see it and the, the bale has fallen facing the altar. And everybody gets upset about it. And they're like, who did this? And they come to Gideon's dad and they find out it was Gideon and they said, hey, send out Gideon so we can destroy him. And his dad says, no, wait a second. If Baal's really God, then let Baal defend himself. Because here's this Israelite dad who hadn't raised his son well, sees some faith in his son, and is wise enough to learn from his son and say, let, let, let's, let's, I remember God too. Let's just see what God's going to do. And God was with them. Listen, if you're a grandparent or an older, you have kids who are older, and you look at the world now, and you think, I don't know what's going to happen to them. I'm scared to death what it's going to look like. We don't need to be afraid. Because the truth is, it says God's going to be with him. In the very, very dark time of Israel, 
with the weakest of the weak, of a guy who doesn't really fully get it. That's who God chose to use. In a very dark time, we're not called to be afraid. In Acts 17, it says that we were born for a certain time and that the God allotted the times of our living. So for what we are going through as Christians in our day, God designed it that way, that you would be in this time, in this place, where you're located at, at work, in your family, in that situation. And the truth is God is with you. God will be with you. You might feel weak. You might be afraid. You might have some really big questions. But the ultimate reality is God is with you. And the call is to just go in obedience. This is all Gideon did. Scared to death, frightful, he still obeys. With all his questions, he's still obeying, and he goes, and he knocks them over, and it gets done. And then in verse 33, it says, Now all the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east came together. Maybe a year has passed, and they know it's going to happen again. We're going to get ravaged. The harvest is going to be gone. It says, And all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. And the people saw it. And then they remembered Gideon. And they said, you know what? We're done with this. Let's get Gideon to help us fight. And it says in verse 34, But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Aborazites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. There was great distress there was great fear. There's these giant gulps by Gideon. But he obeys. And he's moving forward. And then I just want us to see there's just giant, great grace. You think by now Gideon might have got it. You think he would have figured it out, that God was with him, that God really was going to carry him through this. He, he's got the Holy Spirit clothing him. And then it says in verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, which he already said he was going to do, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, and if there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And God says, okay, I'll give you another sign. So Gideon that night, he puts his fleece out on the ground, and he says, if, it's, if the ground's dry and the fleece is wet, then I know you're with me. And God says, okay, I'll make it happen. He wakes up the next morning, goes out, the ground is dry, the fleece is so wet, he, he, he twists it and it, it, it fills a bowl filled of water. You would think, he's got it. Yes, go, fight. And then, and then Gideon says, um, and then Gideon said to God, uh, don't be angry. Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just one more time. Please let me test just one more time with the fleece. Please let it be dry in the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God says, okay. And he lets Gideon put the fleece out there, and he wakes up the next morning, and it's absolutely dry, and around it is just 
covered with dew. Unbelievable grace of God. Unbelievable patience of God. That's the kind of God that we have. There's a story of, uh, of this old, well-known Christian pastor in the 1800s, Dr. Phillips, and he was one morning just struggling in his office and just so much so stressed about all kinds of things. Someone came in who was not normally that way, and they, they said, Dr. Phillips, what's wrong? And he's pacing back and forth in his office, and he, says, ah, he said, I'm in a hurry, and God is not. And it was disturbing him. And God doesn't get angry with us in that moment. God didn't get angry with Gideon. God was just continually patient with him. Unbelievable patience. I mean, think about it if that was your kids. And you would say, okay, I'll do it once. And I'll prove to you. And then they say, no, can you do it again? Our patience would grow very thin. We would lose our patience quickly. That's not the way God is with us. His patience is unbelievably great. That's the picture of God that we have. It says in James 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. We have a Father with unbelievable patience for us. And your biggest fears on Wednesday nights or Thursday mornings or Saturdays, when, when nobody else is around that you can pretend that it's all okay, and you're struggling deeply, and you're fearful, and God's calling you, what do you do? We are called to go to God. Let Him ask. God says, just Come, pour out your heart to me. This is the picture of the God that we have. Zechariah 4, 6. It's, and then we say it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This, this is what he promises us. He never got angry with Gideon. After telling him, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you, and Gideon says, I'm fearful, I'm fearful, I'm fearful. God says, I'm going to be with you. And, and he stays with him. It's unbelievable grace that God has for us. It's the patience of God, it's the picture of God, and it's the promise of God for us. Brennan Manning, who died a couple years ago, he, he said this, and I think it's true of me, I think it's true of all of us. He says, when I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt I hope and get discouraged. I love, I hate, I feel bad about being good, and I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and suspicious. I'm honest, and I still play games. Aristotle said I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an animal with an incredible capacity for beer. For me, it would be an incredible capacity for coffee. But we are paradoxes, aren't we? We believe God, but we don't believe God. We, 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 we fear and we have faith. We enjoy our sin and we feel guilty for our sin. And this is us. This is Christians. This is faith. And God all along says to us over and over again, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm still with you. Don't be afraid. I'm still with you. What we are called to do in those moments is to remember your baptism. We need to remember our baptism. 
that we were in Christ, that we have been crucified with Christ, we have been buried with him, and we are in Christ. That's what the picture of baptism is, that we are no longer who we used to be with all our anxieties, all our fears, all our struggles. If you are in Christ, we are in Christ, and he is, he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake us. And in our deepest paradoxical struggling moments, what we need most is to remember who God is and to remember our baptism about who we are in Christ. Because if you read the rest of the Gideon story, he has great victory. He destroys the army of Midian with 300 men. After God removing them so that God can say, it wasn't by you, Gideon, it wasn't by your strength, it was by me. He's successful. And then at the end of his life, he's not successful at all. And it ends badly for Gideon. Yet Hebrews chapter 11 Verses 32 through 33 says this about Gideon. And what more shall I say? For time would fail of me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. Whose faith were they counting on? Was it their faithfulness or was it God's faithfulness? Gideon succeeded in God's faithfulness. And the point of it for us and the point of it for you is that our weakness is not a problem for God. If we recognize it, if we're willing to be used by God, and if we respond to him in faith. There's an old hymn that I was reminded of this week called Under His Wings. And it says, under his wings, I am safely abiding. Though the night deepens and tempests are wild, still I can trust him. I know he will keep me. He has redeemed me. I am his child. Under his wings, under his wings, from his love, none can sever. Under his wings, my soul shall abide, safely abide forever. Do you feel weak as a Christian? Do you feel fearful? Do you feel like you're not sure what to do with these unexpected things? Gideon's story says to us, embrace your weakness and trust God. Just act, obey. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. He has unbelievable grace for us, unbelievable patience. That's who he is. Rest under his wings. We have an unbelievably great God.